Welcome back to Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio. Now your host, Jacobus Hollowine. Thank you very much, Chadwick. I appreciate it. All of you listening today to the program, we hope you're enjoying yourself. I know that there's a football game coming up, but we hope that you stick with us for another hour. Dr. Robert Linden, author of The Rise and Fall of the American Medical Empire, a retired physician, primary care physician, a trench doctor, that's what he calls himself as a primary care physician, a trench doctor's view of the past, present, and future of the U.S. healthcare system. And um, the book is available at Borders. The book is available at Amazon.com. It is, uh, uh, just go check it out. You can even go to the, uh, the, the actual, the publisher, which is Riverside, no, it is called uh, Sunrise River Press, sunriseriverpress.com. You can also contact Dr. Linden. He's going to be busy this weekend, but uh, next week, if you want to talk to him one-on-one, ask him questions about the book, it's 860-830-739-4276, where you can call him next week. If you would rather email Dr. Linden, send him an email at linden0552 at yahoo.com, linden0552 at linden yahoo.com, and then you can send him an email and, and wait for his response. He has been so busy with what he is doing, he is not the uh, the uh, the internet type person, so he just, uh, that's what he has his wife for, but uh, he just, uh, he is a great talker, speaker, uh, and a wonderful author. When you read his book, as I mentioned, it is a it's a it's an interesting read. Uh, it, it's it's great to read. It's almost like you're sitting on his lap and he's just reading the book to you. Uh, that's how it feels. But there is a lot of great technical information. But in every page, you read the compassion. You read the passion that he has had for his work and the compassion that he's had for his patients. So uh, hopefully you pick it up and and find information that is going to be helpful for you. We only have an hour left. And there is still so much to talk about, and I am looking forward to having Dr. Linden back on the program for another show. We are continuing with Dr. Linden here. Dr. Linden, we want to talk about this 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 blatant advertising we see today in the news from pharmaceutical companies. Uh, you see people walking out in the field in the sunlight with light clothes on. They're all beautiful people, and they're just dancing around. And then uh, we, we hear all the great benefits that this medication has. And then the last 15, 12 to 15 seconds of the commercial, we hear somebody speak extremely fast, telling us everything we got to be careful about, which, of course, nobody's listening to anymore uh, because all we have is the picture of beauty and success. And uh, sadly enough, we have seen too many problems with medication that is o- either overprescribed or overpromising and underdelivering. Right, and, and I think that, of course, so that quick speaking at the end with the side effects is a requirement from the FDA, and that was the thing that pharmaceutical companies had to give in to. They're, they're not doing that because they want to do it. It's an FDA requirement because when they 
started with direct-to-consumer advertising, uh, the FDA laid down some ground rules and, and, and it pretty much had to explain what was in the package insert um, similar to what, what, what doctors are reading and, and give ways for patients could ask questions with telephone numbers or ask your doctor or things like that. Right. But you're right in the fact that that's been the bugaboo of direct-to-consumer advertising is that it's very glossy, uh, somewhat misleading, and, and the problem is it, it fosters this whole concept that you were mentioning earlier in the program about, about the fact that it, this concept that there's a, there's a medicine for everything. And people forget that basically their lifestyle changes. They, these these direct-to-consumer advertisers never mention lifestyle changes. They go directly to the medicine. And for every ailment you have, every pain, every type of disease, there's a medicine, and that's what they're advertising. The other problem is that direct-to-consumer advertising is always for proprietary medicines. These are the brand-new, brand-name medicines. Of course, they never mention that if there's a group of medicines. You know, a lot of these groups have older medicines that are now gone generic, which are inexpensive, uh, but they never mention those because they're obviously advertisements for this one drug created by the pharmaceutical company sponsoring the ad. I think the major problem, however, with these is what we're alluding to at the end before the break, which is a safety issue, and I think, and and these advertisements are started up by the drug companies the first year that these medicines are out, and so you have now a study. At FDA has accepted this medicine, but based on three thousand people, of which you're not going to really, you know, develop a good side effect profile, and now you have it going out to millions of people that are going to take it, and I think that the medicine you mentioned before, Viox, is the best example of this. I mean, you know. Yeah. The, the study was basically a, a study, and a Vioxx is a COX-2 inhibitor, it's called. These are arthritis pills that were supposed to be unique in the fact they took away inflammation in joints, but they did not bother your stomach. Yes. So they were different from naproxen and ibuprofen, Motrin and aspirin, because, because those medicines will basically, again, take away your joint pains, but also could cause stomach upset. Uh, these medicines did not affect the lining of the stomach. Um, and, and what and but they also wouldn't block prostaglandins. You know, again, they, they wouldn't they wouldn't be like aspirin, where they would help prevent heart disease. Yeah. And so the first study out basically showed a slight. It was Vioxx versus an older non-steroidal anti-inflammatory called naproxen, and there was some increase in heart disease um, seen. And, and the answer of the company was, well, that where it's not that Vioxx is causing heart disease, it's naproxen. What we're going against in the study was actually preventing heart disease. And and some questions were brought up. Uh, doctors hadn't seen the study. The FDA had accepted the medicine based on that study, and also that study came out after Vioxx was on the market. And but the, but when the questions came about the safety, that's when Merck started the whole advertisement, you know, campaign. And I, I think some of us remember Dorothy Hamill, you know, lacing up her skates and sliding across the ice skating rink, basically expressing how the Vioxx was helping her arthritis. And that was a hundred million dollar ad campaign wow. that was started while Merck knew that there was probably a problem with this medicine. And it wasn't until a study that actually, some of these medicines actually we think prevent colon polyps, and it wasn't until basically a study was Vioxx versus placebo. So it wasn't against another medicine, it was versus nothing, a pill that had nothing in it, to see if they prevented colon polyps, it did. But there was also an increased incidence of heart disease and, you know, and, and stroke, and, and the medicine was, was uh, withdrawn from the market. Yeah. But that was, that was only after, I think, uh, you know, it, it had, I think it had clocked sales like $80 billion or something across the, 
the world globally. Huh. Wow. And, um, and, and basically, I think 80 million people were taking this medicine. Um, and, uh, and then it was withdrawn. And a lot of that, 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 that you know, basically enrollment of patients into this medicine was based on direct-to-consumer advertising. Wow. So um, there are a lot of people that advocate that new medicines should not be uh, advertised on TV, that they should be out for a year or two first so we can try mm-hmm. them in That's thousands right. of people before we expose them to the, uh, expose the entire country to these ads on TV and, and radio and newspapers. Plus, let's not forget that uh, reports are coming out that when a test is done on a group of people, that sometimes the negative ones are just thrown out in order to make the number look better. Right. You know, that, and, that, go ahead. That, that's a key point. I mean, I think that that's, that's a major problem with the literature, and that's a major problem with also the, you know, the, the drug companies have gotten into they're basically funding about 70% of any study you see uh, done on a drug in this country. 70% of those studies are funded by the drug companies sponsoring that drug. Yeah. And so what's happened, and they have control over, they, they, they shouldn't have control, and they, there are some laws against this now, but somehow they do still control what's published and what isn't. And for a variety of reasons, the negative studies just aren't published. So mm-hmm. in a, a negative study being the medicine didn't do anything. Right. And, um, and so those studies get buried, whether the, the, the researcher is not, you know, basically, you know, stops the study because nothing's happening, or the, or the journal doesn't think it's interesting enough because the study, the medicine didn't do anything, or the, or the pharmaceutical company has a way of squelching the, the study. The bottom line is negative studies don't get published. It's called publication bias. And what's made worse is are these, what we see a lot now is what's called a meta-analysis. That's based on the fact that there, are, there may be numerous small studies with not a lot of people enrolled, and they don't, the, the numbers don't reach the fiscal um, significance. And so what they do is they lump all the 10 studies together to create more people to generate numbers. Well, if you are lumping the studies in the journals together that have left out the negative studies, you can see where the whole meta-analysis gets skewed to the a positive result on the medicine, wow. and uh, that that that's become more and more of a problem, and and for that reason, the FDA and these journal editors are now requiring all studies to be registered. So that uh-huh. as soon as a study starts, it's registered. So if it doesn't make it into a journal article or something like that, the results of that study are still available to, for everybody to see if it's a negative study. Uh huh. Uh, we have a caller who is patiently waiting to talk to you. Caller, good morning. Thanks for your patience. What is your name? How can we help you, please? Is it me who's on? It is you who's on. Yeah, I have a, um, a kind of a multi-pronged question. Uh-huh. I know that we only graduate so many medical students a, a year, and I know so many doctors are retiring, and I understand that we need more family doctors than we do, or, or is it true that we need, do, are we going to need more specialists also? And I know we're importing a lot of doctors from foreign countries, and we're also trying to educate a lot more nurses to be nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Yeah. So there's this whole combination of things that are coming down. So what I want to know is, are we going to need more specialists? Um, and what are those specialists we're going to be needing? And if um, I actually have a daughter in medical school now, and she's trying to decide what she wants to do. And she's finding with internal medicine, one of the things that's frustrating her is that um, when patients don't take care of themselves and when they don't heed all the things that Jacobus is talking about, about exercise and diet and weight, and you encourage them and you are a life coach, 
but um, it's not happening. And as a young person, you know, they want things quickly. Yeah. But also, it, um, you know, and she realized all the social ills. But it's, it's been very hard for her to think about being a family doctor because of what she's up against. And then I just wanted to also ask about a student's natural talents. I mean, someone might be naturally a really good surgeon, or they might be a really good at a specialty. And I just want to know, what are the needs of specialty? We can't just have no specialists. And so kind of a multi-pronged question. I'm curious what the doctor has to say. Yeah, stay on the line because if you have a, if we miss one of your questions, then we can, uh, we can answer that. Uh, Dr. See. Linden. Yeah, those are great questions. Um, yeah, I mean, actually right now, I mean, historically, about 16,000 people have graduated from medical school in this country every year, and that's been constant for years. There's a big push to sort of increase that. And the problem with that big push is that right now, if medical schools continue this um, this idea that they're swaying people away from uh, primary care into subspecial, subspecialties, and they do that because they don't have a lot of role models for subspecialties, I mean, for primary care. Um, they basically also probably dump on primary care a lot. They also basically, you know, primary care people could be heroes in their communities, in a small community, but they just don't write the articles for New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA. They don't get in the front of Time magazine, you know, Newsweek. And so they don't bring sort of, you know, basic reputation prestige to the, to the medical school. So the medical schools are more interested in turning out those specialists. Um, so they're really medical schools are sort of reneging, I think, on their responsibility to turning out primary care. And the fear of people in primary care is that even though we increase the numbers, slots in medical schools, that they're just going to end up turning out more subspecialists and not more primary care. Mm -hmm. there, you know, we don't have in this country, like in Europe, workforce committees. And, and, and what, what a workforce committee is, is a group of people that go out into the communities of the country, both in the rural areas and the cities, and see what we really need as physicians. Are we down on primary care? Are we down on cardiologists? Do we need more gastroenterologists for stomachs? We don't, we don't have that. Most other countries, number one, support their medical schools financially, and number two, have workforce committees. And so the government's able to go out and say, hey, we're down on primary care, and we're, they come back to the medical schools and they say, hey, look, you know, we need you to turn out 10% more internists or primary care physicians over the next five years, or we're going to withhold funding. Yes. We don't have that. In this country, wow. the medical schools pretty much run the show. And so they're going to turn out who they want to turn out, uh, and, and the government really has no control of that. Do we need more subspecialists? The problem right now is that you know, doctors gravitate to, really, there's no pressure on them to, to sort of go out into the rural areas or the underserved areas. And what, what subspecialists tend to do is they gravitate to urban er suburban areas, urban areas for for culture, for, for, in, for increased salaries and things like that, they don't end up in the underserved rural areas of this country. So that's another problem turning out more subspecialists. I and also subspecialists, like Cobus was referring to before, are expensive. That model of having a subspecialty-based model, which we're the only country that has that, is extremely expensive. If you think about it, you know, good internists should be able to take care of, you know, your, high, your, your diabetes, your lung disease, your angina in one visit, you know, under one roof. And a subspecialty based model, which is what we're approaching in this country, now instead of that one internist, you have three doctors. You have a cardiologist for your angina, you have a, a Jocelyn clinic or a diabetologist for your diabetes, you have a lung doctor for your emphysema. 
three doctors. They each charge maybe one and a half to three times more than the internist. So you have three visits, each visit more expensive than the internist. Um, and then the, some specialists use a lot more technology. They just don't do a lot of bedside diagnosis. Because some some of them because they don't know how to do it, and others because they think the buck stops with them. They cannot make a mistake. They're the specialists. And so they're the people who are going to order more technology. So that's very expensive. So I think right now, when you go through the subspecialists to answer your question, I think we have enough subspecialists, but we have to turn out more primary care. I agree that, you know, that it is frustrating in a primary care office when people come in and they don't listen to you. They continue to smoke and they continue to, you know, remain obese. Uh, they don't follow diets. But there's also a satisfaction there. If you talk to any primary care doctor, I mean, especially in a rural area, they're part of the community. The patients are their friends and neighbors. They do make inroads on that patient's medical illness. And there is a satisfaction you get from that versus being a subspecialist in a city where you're treating a bunch of people, but you don't know them. You'll never see them on the street. You'll never see them in your church um, or your school system because it's a, a large city where in my town, for example, 15,000, I mean, I, I, you know, my patients I saw all the time on the street. And again, they were my friends, and, yeah. and they really, it was a satisfying experience. So I really, you know, would bring that home to your daughter, that she can derive satisfaction. Hopefully things will change for, with a variety of things that are being done, but it's going to take a big, big push, because we have a generation problem now, too. I mean, a lot of people graduate from medical school, the millennials, they want their 40-hour work weeks, they want their nights, they want their weekends, and unfortunately, that's not available in primary care. I mean, you have to sort of put in the time, and, and there is a lot of night and weekend call. Yeah, yeah. I mean, does that answer some Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, it does. Uh, but, and then, you know, I, I, I mean, I agree with you, you know, 99% about everything you're saying. And then to actually watch someone go through this process of the gruel of medical school and uh, everything, and then, you know, then you get back up to, you know, what um, primary care physicians are paid. And um, it's just, you know, when we, we know how they're so undervalued. And so that, I'm sure, weighs on a lot of students because they've got these hefty bills and with the economy. And I don't know if you're going to – I know there's lots of programs out there in rural areas where they're trying to attract students, helping them with their loans and, you know, a variety of ways. But I'm sure the financial impact of medical school makes, you know, big, you know, influences students as to what they need to do. Well, you know, oh, that is, yeah, I want to I, want to jump on that for a second. That is, that is an interesting concept that you bring, Carla. Um, it, but it is the same as what is going on with the healthcare system. Is that it doesn't? You know, you never have a blue light special with a do, in a doctor's visit. It's always a certain price. You never can go to the pharmacist and say, "Hey, I tell you what, uh, you know, ask of whatever medication you need. It's on sale this whole month. You actually find a great price. We do some. It, there is never a sale on pharmaceutical drugs, and there is never a sale on doctor's visits. So, it's the same with medical school. They can charge whatever they want because they know the student eventually is going to pay for it. And that is uh, it, so. The 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 quality of education or what you're really trying to get out of it as, as a student is not always there, but you still end up paying the bill. And it is sadly enough the same as what's happening with, uh, with, the, with the drugs that people buy. They don't always know the long-term side effects, but they do have to pay for them no matter what. You cannot bring it back and say, well, you know, I tried it for a week. I don't really like it. Can I get my money back? You know, And that is a, I, I feel the cost of medical school 
it's anybody can set a price if there are people who flock to that school and they want to go through those four or five or six year study, they'll pay for it. They're underpaying for it. So they can get away with it with charging whenever they want to charge. And that is why the, 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 the loans that students have to pay back in real life are going to be there no matter how you look at it. Right. What did um, the doctor, what did you say? I, about- I just want to yeah, well, throw one thing in, but, but coming back to your question, it, it, it's really interesting because actually a friend of mine is an infectious disease uh, physician at Brown University in Rhode Island, and, and, and he brought up the exact same point you're bringing up, that the only people, the interesting thing, the only people going into primary care are the rich students because the rich students basically, number one, have no loans to pay off, and number two, they have income from other means through their families, and they don't make income from their vocation. The vocation, vocational income is not important. So they're the ones going to primary care where everybody else is graduating with, like you said, I think the number is like 25% of graduate medical schools have debts of over $200,000. And, and uh, you're right. I mean, you can't take a, an in, a internal medicine. They make 55% of what a sub, in general, what a subspecialist yeah. makes. And so you're taking a person who's going to make half the income and, and graduating them with a $200,000 debt. And what are they going to do? They're going to go into a subspecialty, like you said. And I we, think there are ways to sort of, you know. Dr. Linden, we're going to have to keep your okay. thought again. I know that you may not hear the music in the background, but we are running up to a break here. Okay. Paula, I'm sorry we can't continue with this. We'll jump on it when we come back out of the break. Stay tuned for another half hour. We'll be right back. You're listening to Gesundheit with Jacobus. 